I thought we could begin with uh, about 15 minutes or so of uh, silent meditation. Um, I realize some of you may be uh, unfamiliar or new to this kind of practice, so I'll say a few words and then um, we'll ring a bell. The practice that um, I would suggest is a very simple one, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. It's learning to focus on our our felt experience in such a way that we ground ourselves in a stillness, in uh, uh, an awareness, a clarity of mind that is, perhaps for the beginning at least, focused on the rhythm of breathing. So as we breathe in, as we breathe out, we feel the air as it enters the nostrils, passes through the windpipe, expands the lungs, the diaphragm, pauses, and then is exhaled. And by just bringing the attention again and again back to this primal rhythm of our lives, we may begin to find that the chatter, the free associative nature of our thoughts uh, begins just to quieten down a bit and we settle into a still, clear, open spaciousness of mind in which we find a certain calm but also, and perhaps more crucially, we have a, a perspective or a vantage point whence to consider afresh the nature of our experience here and now. So good evening, my name is Stephen Batchelor and um, I'm here this evening to talk about a book that has just been published by uh, Riverhead in New York called uh, Living with the Devil and there are copies out on the table at the back that um, if you wish you can purchase after the event and I would be very happy to sign copies for you. I'd like to talk about uh, the book, but to focus really on uh, the key theme of the book, which is the devil. Now, some of you may not associate Buddhism, which is, of course, my own, my own background, my tradition, um, with ideas about the devil. And yet, in fact, we find in the early Buddhist uh, discourses, particularly those recorded in, in Pali, an enormous amount of material that explores the nature of what we in the West would probably call the demonic. The figure um, the, the Buddhists uh, use to represent this is called Mara. But let me begin with a, a story not a story really, it's almost a, a joke that I think Krishnamurti used to use sometimes. God and the devil were walking down the road and, the God, and God suddenly said, oh look, I found the truth. And the devil said to him, oh, give it to me, I'll organize it for you. <laughs> now, Again, one might see that as just a rather amusing little anecdote. But in fact, I think it points to something rather central that characterizes uh, the devil, the demonic, and a feature that is not exclusively Buddhist or Christian, but one that embraces both those traditions. And that is the sense of the devil as a kind of constrictive or enclosing function that occurs certainly within our own subjective experience, the sense of feeling uh, trapped, the sense of feeling 
uh, blocked. The sense sometimes we have in our lives of feeling uh, a kind of inner paralysis almost. A sense that we're just not getting anywhere. But of course it can also be understood as something broader than just a feature of our own inner life. It can refer, I think, to more or less any kind of tyranny, any kind of of social or political uh, structure, maybe an institutional structure, that is concerned with um, organising, controlling, and thereby inhibiting the freedom of the individual and we can extend that also to, the, to, the, to a community, to a society as such. There are many images that suggest this and even the word uh, devil in English suggests this. It comes from the Greek uh, diabolos and diabolos, where we get the word diabolic, literally means Uh, something that is thrown across the path. Even the Hebrew word, uh, Satan, likewise means, literally, uh, the adversary, the opponent. And in another context altogether, the Buddhists speak of Mara. And Mara literally means uh, the killer. That which kills us literally as death, but also that which somehow kills us spiritually or morally or intellectually in the form of a kind of intellectual or spiritual death that might come about if we become too attached or too identified with fixed ideas, Um, opinions, belief systems, orthodoxies, that although they might give us a degree of security, a sense of knowing our place, where we are in the scheme of things, can at the same time also be somewhat oppressive and limiting. Another term that the Buddha uses to um, suggest this sense of the demonic as essentially a closure is in the word, a Pali word, uh, antaka. Anta means uh, the end of something. It can also mean something like a boundary or a border, an enclosure. And the imposition of such um, is what is considered to be the function of the demonic. The demonic is that which imposes Uh, constraints, limits, borders, ends on our situation. Often in popular demonology, we think of the devil, um, and the devil is represented, as a kind of tricksterish, rather um, uh, tyrannical figure. Uh, We think perhaps of uh, Dante's vision of hell, And we find that the beings in the uh, various circles of hell, he goes down through nine different levels, are uh, depicted as undergoing these um, torments, that they are, as it were, in the grip of these rather fiendish demons. And we think, therefore, of the demonic as having this kind of um, uh, power of, this rather energetic power, this tormenting power. But if we reflect on what that might mean in terms of the person who is suffering the torment, if you might think, for example, of Hieronymus Bosch and his very beautiful painting of hell, these people who are subject to the power of these demons would feel trapped, would feel somehow completely uh, out of control of their lives and suffering um, torments that are being imposed upon them by forces other than themselves. So again it suggests, I feel, very much this sense of a kind of existential paralysis. 
When Dante and his guide Virgil arrive at the ninth circle of hell, they find themselves no longer in um, this rather hot, fiery place in the upper circles, you know, with sort of bubbling brimstone and all that stuff, but they find themselves on a vast plain of ice, um, and a wind is blowing towards them from the centre of this ice, and Virgil encourages Dante to proceed into this wind, into the centre of this plain. And when Dante arrives at the centre, he sees uh, Satan. And Satan is embedded in the ice itself, sunken up to his chest, his bat-like wings uh, flapping um, helplessly and thereby creating this cold wind that they first encountered on arriving there. Once again, at the heart of hell, at the heart of the demonic, we find this state very, very powerfully expressed of one of being frozen. And frozen suggests there is no warmth, there is not much light, and there's no capacity at all for movement, for vitality. There's a state of complete alienation, desolation and despair. So once again we have this same image of entrapment. The Buddha likewise uses images which suggest this. He speaks of how we find ourselves caught in Mara's snare. He compares Mara in one passage to um, a hunter who goes into the forest and lays out traps and snares for the deer who wander peacefully and innocently through the undergrowth um, in order to catch them, in order to trap them, in order to once again prevent them from any kind of movement. Uh, In another passage he speaks of uh, the demonic or Mara um, as casting fish hooks and we get caught on the fish hooks of Mara. And again, it's a very painful image, but it's an image with a barbed hook of being caught on something from which we cannot free ourselves. We feel trapped. And um, Buddhists who have a rather strong predilection towards speaking in uh, psychological language uh, we'll consider these fish hooks to be things like um, attachment or hatred or lethargy or restlessness or jealousy or fear or greed. And so if we interpret it that way, it's as though we find ourselves when we come under the um, influence of these often very strong emotions and patterns of thought, that once we are under their power, it's like we are caught in a fish hook. It's so difficult sometimes to then break out of the mental state in which we now somehow feel confined. Um, We witness this, of course, very much in the practice of meditation. And perhaps for some of us, as we were sitting here for the last uh, 20 minutes or so, uh, trying to remain still with the breath, we may have had moments in which we felt a certain ease, we felt a certain openness, an opening up of our experience, an attention, um, a fascination perhaps with what is being revealed as we uh, look more deeply and more carefully at what what is happening. And then, often without even being aware of anything changing, suddenly, minutes will elapse, and we suddenly come to, and are aware that we're now in the grip of, let's say, an obsessive uh, thought about something someone said to us earlier in the course of the day. 
or we find ourselves in the grip um, of an anxiety or a worry. We feel as though we've somehow come under attack. And once we're in the grip of um, a, a worry, we know how that affects us. It affects us in a way that we literally feel somehow caught by it. We don't uh, have the ability simply to say, oh, I'm going to stop worrying. Stop worrying. Stop thinking that. Stop feeling that. It's not within our um, volitional control. Once such a thought or such a feeling has, has got us, it's though it's hooked us. And it's often very difficult to uh, then find a way out of that. Of course, in the sort of practice we're doing here, it's not a question of fighting that and trying to sort of strain against the hook because that will very often just intensify, make the experience even more pronounced. But rather it's returning to that open, free space in which we can um, see what is happening. We can notice what's going on. We can say, yes, this is my reality right now. Um, It may not feel very pleasant. Um, I may not want it to be this way, but this is how it is. And it's in that kind of seeing that we gain the, um, the possibility of finding a way of being free from the power of Mara. Another image that we find in the Pali text to describe Mara is the image of Namuchi. Now, Mara is not always called Mara. He actually has a number of terms. We've already mentioned one, Antaka, the imposer of ends, or as Gill very wittily said once, the terminator. (laughs) But also Mara is identified with different um, uh, gods from within the Indian uh, cosmology. And one of the gods with whom he has identified is a rather obscure deity, um, who I suspect none of us have heard about, I never was aware of this until quite recently, called Namuchi. Namuchi is the Vedic god of the drought. And the word Namuchi literally means something like the one who withholds the waters. And in Indian mythology, um, when the uh, season is approaching that of the monsoon, this is where Namuchi um, comes into play. And he is this figure who they believed somehow held back the monsoon, held back the, um, the release of the waters, which, of course, in those times were crucial, um, not just for the fact of getting crops, but for the very survival of the community through to the next um, year. So Indra, the king of the gods, strikes Namuchi with his Vajra, with his thunderbolt scepter, and on being struck, Namuchi releases the waters, releases the rains, so that the people are then able to have their crops, are able to survive. It's very curious that Namuchi, uh, that Mara would be identified with this figure. It suggests very much, though, that once again, Mara's primary function is that of um, a kind of uh, holding back, a resistance, um, a refusal to uh, release what is actually essential to the possibility of life. And in this sense, we can begin to understand again how Mara is a kind of death, figuratively and uh, literally, and how when Mara's grip is released, then we open the possibility of living, of living fully, of life itself. 
So we might therefore consider Mara to be that which constricts and constrains the flow of life and life itself to be the, the energizing, uh, fulfilling and very much moving and unfolding process that we could understand as the path, we could understand even perhaps as Buddha nature itself. That if we understand Buddha and Mara as somehow um, polar figures representing features within our own inner life, inner landscape, then Mara is that which constricts and Buddha is that which unconstricts, releases, lets go. A passage in another Buddhist text in the Diganikaya, the Buddha says, whenever a person grasps, Mara stands beside them. That Mara is identified with grasping, with clinging, with attachment, which of course in Buddhism is a very key idea. And perhaps one of the the deepest and most uh, destructive forms of grasping or attachment is this um, almost instinctive sense we have of being isolate, alienated, selves, egos, so cut off, so locked into the spasm of our own identity that we literally feel um, uh, disconnected from the, the web of relations that constitute the living matrix of life itself. So, Mara is another way of talking about self-grasping, egoism, uh, obsessive and neurotic uh, self-centeredness that is not just um, a kind of distortion of the mind that, for the, 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 that makes us uh, un- see things in a, in a deceptive or in a fictive way, but actually causes us to feel what in contemporary parlance we might talk of as alienation. I think the word alienation catches it very well. The sense of being, of feeling apart, the sense of feeling uh, cut off, both in terms of our, of the sources of the own, uh, of our own life, the potentials that our life has, as well as of course, our connection with the community, with the biosphere of which we are an integral part. So Buddha and Mara we can think of as um, of ways of exploring this dichotomy. If Mara is this grasping, this clinging, this closing down, then once again Buddha is the counter-movement of opening up. In fact, in Tibetan, when they translated the word Buddha, which literally means the the awake one, the awakened one, the Tibetans didn't use the metaphor of waking up. They translated the word as Sangye. And Sang means something like cleansed or purified. And Gye, or in its active verb form, Gyawa, means um, unfolding expanding, opening up. So the Buddha is the one who is somehow cleansed of attachment and fully opened up, fully unfolded. And that I think is a very beautiful image that again uh, affirms this, this polarity between Mara and Buddha. As I was um, writing this book, one of the things that uh, really became a central question for me uh, on studying the uh, classical texts as to how they uh, represented Mara was to notice that although Buddha is commonly described as one who has conquered Mara, who has overcome Mara, Nonetheless, most of the passages that 
describe the interactions between Buddha and Mara occur not before the awakening, but after the awakening. And this is curious. What does it mean for one who has uh, conquered Mara to still be subject to Mara's appearance in his life? We find Mara um, continually harassing, uh, tempting, provoking. There's a phone ringing. Um, we find um, uh, Mara continuous, continuing to uh, harass, to provoke, to irritate, to taunt the Buddha, um, right from the Enlightenment until shortly before his death, uh, 50 years later. So, how can we make sense of that? What does that mean? Traditional Buddhism would probably explain it in literally believing this figure of Mara to be a god, an an autonomous being, who would descend from his uh, heavenly realm and literally appear on the stage next to the Buddha, uh, have a kind of exchange. The Buddha would see through his uh, trickery and being seen through, then Mara would uh, disappear. He'd go away. Very often he'd go off in a bit of a sulk. (laughs) But if we think of this um, uh, uh, from a a more contemporary perspective, we probably would not uh, literally accept uh, the idea of gods appearing in the world and having conversations with human beings and then going off again. But rather we would understand this as a figurative way of talking about the Buddha's own experience, of what's going on for the Buddha. Perhaps the early tradition already was uh, uncomfortable with uh, somehow suggesting the Buddha was still within the the realm of Mara. So they split off the uh, figure of Mara from the figure of Buddha and provide this kind of... uh, Uh, this kind of mythic uh, language. But what it seems to suggest is that the freedom the Buddha experiences is not achieved through literally the deleting of all aspects of the demonic, of Mara, but rather is achieved through a deep understanding of the limit conditions of human existence. And through that understanding, through knowing, not just conceptually or intellectually, but knowing in a deep, intuitive way what is going on here, that in itself disempowers or takes the charge, the potency, out of Mara's um, activity. And we find passages, uh, again in the early canon, where um, this is quite explicit. One of the episodes that I I find shows this very well is after a particular exchange, Mara's doing his usual thing of trying to persuade the Buddha to give up, you know, being such a wonderful person. Um, The Buddha will say, or the Buddha will suddenly uh, say, I know you, Mara. This is usually the end of these dialogues. I know you, Mara. Mara might sometimes say, yes, the Blessed One knows me. And at that point, he disappears. So it's this knowledge, this understanding, that is liberating, not the elimination of something within us or in the world that we somehow cannot accept. At the end of one of these exchanges, we have Mara going uh, off uh, to the side and then saying to himself I remember once seeing a crow and it saw a lump of fat on the ground and it thought oh great food and so the crow dived onto the lump of fat only to discover when it struck it with its beak that it wasn't a lump of fat at all it was a rock hard and inedible 
as the text says. And the the crow then flew away in disgust. And then Mara says to himself, I feel like I'm that crow. I've had enough of Gautama. And at which point um, he then disappears. So here we have a metaphor um, in which the Buddha's freedom is understood as his having achieved a kind of immunity to Mara. He's become impervious to Mara. And in fact, in another text altogether, the Buddha says that he has become invisible to Mara, that he has blindfolded Mara. Now this is not the language of having you know, got rid of something that never will occur again, but rather a language of having uh, uh, realized a profoundly different relationship to the demonic, the devil, Mara, in such a way that no longer can these things gain any kind of toehold, any kind of purchase on this liberated mind. Now, of course, when we sit in, when I sit in meditation, I don't want to assume this happens with you too, I find my mind is, in many ways, it's got all these kind of jagged edges that Mara has, you know, really, you know, no problem at all kind of gripping (laughs) onto. It it seems to be quite a a very fertile field for Mara's activity. And um, so often... Uh, in meditation or in life really, I find that in, in spite of my, my yearnings and my longings to be clear in my mind, to be focused, to be sensitive, to be responsive and so on and so forth, I find that I'm in the grip of you know, a frustration, an anxiety, a craving, a frust- uh, sort of a, a negativity of a particular kind and um, there I feel stuck but I'm also aware in, uh, in other moments how in a meditative frame of mind I suddenly find that I'm able to be with this stuff in another way and this perhaps is for many of us what we value in, medita- in, in the practice of, of mindfulness in particular that we discover the capacity to be with the stuff that under many other circumstances would uh, uh, be very um, troubling for us, to suddenly find this perspective in which we can be with it, but not of it. And that, I think, is a key, perhaps, to the sort of freedom the Buddha is speaking about. It's a freedom that um, needs to be affirmed experientially, existentially. And I think we find, as we continue uh, in the cultivation and the development of awareness, um, we get more and more moments where we find this possibility becoming real for us. That we can be in the midst of all kinds of inner turbulence, and yet we're not disturbed We can be in the midst of boredom, but can actually find it quite fascinating and interesting. In other words, we're not uh, defined by the content of what um, breaks into consciousness. We're able to be with it, we're able to observe it, and notice how it's simply part of the flux and the flow of life itself. And having arisen, it will invariably pass away. And it's in that kind of perspective that freedom I think, the sort of freedom the Buddha spoke of, becomes apparent. So much for Mara, so much for the demonic. The counter image of Mara um, is I feel in many ways not so much the figure of Buddha but the notion of a path And in fact, the book I've written breaks down into three uh, sections. The first part uh, is a a meditation, a reflection on the demonic, 
both within Buddhism primarily, but also in Judaism, Christianity, Islam, as well as right through into certain secular writers such as Kafka and Beckett. The second part of the book, though, considers what it is that frees us from Mara. And I think the guiding metaphor is the metaphor of being on a path. The, we've already mentioned how diabolos means that which is thrown across the path. There's also, of course, in Buddhism, this endless uh, uh, discussion of, of hindrances, of obstacles, of obstructions. The five hindrances is very much um, uh, something we speak of in, in, in Theravada Buddhism particularly. Uh, attachment, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, doubt. But why are these called hindrances? Why are these called obstacles? I think the language or the metaphor of an obstacle is only intelligible within the wider metaphor of a path. In other words, um, we are hindered, we are obstructed from a kind of free, unimpeded movement that a path makes possible. Part of the problem, I think, is that when we use this word path, we touch into such a primal metaphor of spiritual and religious life, one that we find more or less without exception in all the traditions of the world. I mean, the Chinese, for example, actually have a whole religion called Pathism. Uh, we know it as Taoism. But Tao, uh, for all of the exotic associations uh, given to that word, like the Tao of business or something, the Tao of physics, Tao is just the, the, uh, the Chinese uh, character uh, for path or street. Uh, sometimes Zen masters play on this. Uh, it's not a, only a, our problem of thinking the Tao is some kind of mystical you know, process or whatever. Uh, one monk went to Chao Chu or Joshu and asked him, um, please master, uh, show me the great way, the great Tao. And to paraphrase somewhat, Chao Chu said, well, go out of here Turn left, it's the second on your right. <laughs> Again, we make it into a thing. But of course, a path in, um, in its essential nature is not a thing on which we walk. A path is actually an open space. A path is literally nothing. If we think of a path, if we represent a path to ourselves in our imagination, we might think of it as a, let's say, a brown line snaking across a green field. But if we were to go up to that brown line and try to establish exactly what, the, what that path was, what will we find? We will find nothing. A path is just a gap, a space, between the grasses on either side. Or if it cuts through a forest, the trees on either side. A path is a, is a human-sized gap in the landscape, but a gap that has a function, a gap that allows the possibility of unimpeded movement. This is the point. And here we get, I think, quite clearly why the, the, the relation between Mara, who's that which prevents the movement, that blocks the path, that shuts us down, as opposed to the sort of freedom we both experience sometimes for ourselves and that perhaps to which, in Buddhist tradition at least, we aspire to, is um, that capacity to be able to move freely in our lives, to move without hesitation, without encumbrance, without limitation, and to somehow enter into the flow of life in such a way that we move towards a destination, we feel our life has an orientation, 
it has a purpose, but experientially we feel that somehow we are unblocked, unhindered and able to move along, to take the next step, to step into the unknown, to encounter the next moment not as something that we've already preconceived as being like this or like that, but actually to be open to each situation, to each moment as it unfolds, in a way in which we're not um, being caught or uh, restrained by habitual ideas, habits, feelings, thoughts, that somehow um, uh, prevent us from being fully open and being fully engaged and being fully in touch with what is unfolding within and around us. So in that sense, a path is a metaphor of freedom. The pa- a path is literally an emptiness. There's nothing to get in our way. A path is a space. Again, we have a slight problem when we use these words in English, because when we think of a space, for example, we tend to think of it as a kind of place where things can happen or things can be put. If I'm sitting in my car and somebody says, is there any space in the car for me? We think of that in terms of you know, whether it's physically possible for such a person to actually fit into that vehicle, into that um, location. Buddhist philosophers uh, defined and understood space in a rather different way. They speak of space as the absence of resistance. The absence of resistance. And again, at first sight, that might sound rather odd. What on earth does that mean? To explain it, there is space in this room, not just because I can put more warm bodies in it or more furniture, but the space in this room is what enables me to be able to move from one side to the other without hindrance or obstruction. So I can walk from here to there uh, without any problem um, because there's nothing in my way. The devil is that which gets in our way. So space is not a static concept, a place of some kind in which temporal events happen, but space is rather the absence of what prevents things from happening. It's the absence of what uh, prevents us from making a step or steps across a room or a landscape. So a path is a preeminent space. And it's a dynamic concept. This, I feel, is very much of the essence. That the path is a process of unfolding, a process of moving from one moment into the next. And it might, in fact, be more appropriate, instead of talking of our walking on a path, to talk of a kind of pathing. In fact, you can say that, apparently, in Sanskrit, you can, the word path, pradipat, can have as a verb form pradipatyate, which would mean he, she or it paths. In French you can do it too. In French you can say une cheminement, a pathment, which is understood as a kind of a process, your pathing, if you wish. So once again we have the idea of a path as a dynamic concept, something that um, allows us movement, allows us growth, allows us the capacity to unfold, to realise our potential, if you wish. And Mara, the demonic, is that which um, impedes and hinders such movement, such flow, such continuity. Remember also, again, if we take this metaphor of path, in, uh, in Taoism, in early Chinese thought, the path is compared to uh, a valley. A path is compared to water. In other words, once again, this notion of, 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 of free flow, of movement. 
so having um, now explored very sketchily the um, notion of Mara and the no, 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 notion of a path, the latter part of the book, the third part, tries to weave these two ideas um, together and to explore what in fact it means to live with the demonic, to live with the devil, the title of the book. Um, in other words, to be conscious and aware of what it is that hems us in, both internally and then towards the end of the book, I look at how you know, social and political structures likewise can have that tyrannical limiting effect. And to explore also um, how um, living with the devil is also a challenge we continuously face in our moral and ethical life. That when we find ourselves in a crisis or when we're confronted, say, with somebody's suffering or pain, you know, how do we respond? Do we simply um, react and in a familiar and in an habitual way and just trot out some comforting Buddhist platitude? Or are we able to encounter fully the dilemma of the other without preconception, without hesitation, without fear, without worrying, you know, what is he or she going to think about me, and actually engage with that situation from what one might call uh, a more open and perhaps a deeper uh, capacity within ourselves. Again, I feel that, you know, this is not talking about some extraordinarily elevated spiritual state, it's talking, I think, about experiences all of us have had in one way or another. We know the difference between when we speak or when we uh, relate to someone and we feel at one level we're just playing a role. We're just acting out what we feel we should do. And yet we also know that there are moments when we encounter the suffering of another, let's say, and we don't give in to that habit, but we find ourselves saying and doing things which are spontaneous, which are responsive, and in such a way that we could actually surprise ourselves. We find ourselves uh, behaving in a way that we didn't think we would perhaps be capable of. So that kind of spontaneity that kind of open, spontaneous responsiveness, I feel in an ethical uh, sense, is the equivalent to the kind of freedom, the kind of openness that we might subjectively experience when we find that capacity to not be hemmed in by emotions or obsessions or aversions. So that, I hope somehow sketches the, um, some of the topics, at least, that I cover in the book. Um, you'll find, of course, were you to read it, that there's all manner of other material that's brought to bear. Um, and the only way I could really communicate that would be to read the whole thing, and that would defeat the purpose of being here tonight. <laughs> so, um, I'd like to conclude there. Um, if anyone has a, a comment or a question, I'd be happy to try and respond to that. Um, but within ten or so minutes, it would be good if we could conclude this se session and I'll go out to the table and sit there and sign copies if you would like to get one. Yes? So, so you're talking about a path. Yeah. One of the things that in my mind was a path is relatively narrow. It's not, for example, an open field. Yeah. And I was wondering if you might say something about the difference between the two. Um, well, the difference between the two is that an open... F okay, you could imagine, let's say, um, you've, got a, you've, got, you've got a forest and it's very difficult to get through. So you get rid of the forest. Now, okay, yeah, you can then walk in that space without any hindrance. But a path um, is more than that. A path um, also... Um, has a destination. A path will take you somewhere. 
An open field won't. You can wander around in it, but it's not in its, in, 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 in its nature something that um, leads anywhere. The other difference is that um, a path is something that we um, create and sustain through the tread of feet which follow, again, a similar trajectory so that when we're on a path, we're actually, uh, um, we're ac- we're actually keeping it open, that narrow space, um, as uh, a way of not only being able to move forward ourselves, but also being able to keep that space open for whoever might follow after us. So being on a path is also um, a process in which we have a debt to those who have preceded us and a responsibility to those who will follow. Now an open field is not like that. An open field is, is only has one aspect and that is the you know, the, the, the fact there's no obstructions. Um, I brought that ele- element out specifically because it's the one that perhaps is most immediately um, e- different from that of that sense of being blocked. But if we tease the metaphor further, we find that it's actually far more complex. And of course, in the book, I, you know, I look at all those three aspects of a path to try to flesh it out. Thank you. Yes. Sorry, Dharma? Oh, Yama. Yes, Mara is Yama. Yama is Mara. Did the concept of Mara come from the Hindus? Well, this is, again, a very interesting question. Where does the notion of Mara come from? The, what is distinctive about Buddhism in all the Indian religions, Hinduism, Jainism and others, is that only in Buddhism do you find a figure called Mara. Mara never appears in the Indian pantheon. That, that word is never used. Mara nonetheless is identified by the Buddhists with a number of Indian gods, including Yama, including Kamadeva, the, Lord, the god of desire, who rules over the sensual realm, the Kamaloka. Mara is identified with um, um, Krishna, in Pali, Kanha. Um, Krishna literally means uh, the dark one, the black one, the darkness. And Mara um, is in a way a a personification, a crystallization of a number of traits that in um, Indian mythology are distributed among a number of gods. We have Namuchi, we have Kamadeva, we have um, Krishna, we have Yama. We might also include Kali, for example, the devouring mother, or Shiva, the destroyer. But nowhere in Hinduism do those traits become embodied in a single figurative personality such as Mara. So where does, Mara, where, where does this figure come from? It seems to be um, exclusive in Indian thought to the Buddhist tradition, but then we have this strange parallel with the figure of Satan in uh, Judaism and Christianity. And what is striking here is that it's not just the, you know, the, the content or the, 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 the definition of Satan and Mara that are somehow parallel. For example, Satan too is identified with death. Uh, when Christ is said to be, uh, Christ is described as the victor or the conqueror, again a similar word used for the Buddha, the conqueror of um, the devil who is death. That's, I think, somewhere in, I guess, in the letter to the Hebrews. Um, you find other, in, in, the idea of, 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 Mar, of Satan is also described as a god. The god of this age is how Paul describes him. The, the, the theos of this aeon. Uh, John calls him the ruler of this world. Which again has an extraordinary resonance with the idea of Mara being the god of the realm of desire, the sensuous realm. 
our world. But more tellingly than any of those details, perhaps, is the kind of tone of voice that Mara and Satan share. Um, You feel as though you're hearing the same kind of tone, the same tricksterish, rather um, uh, conniving, um, uh, insidious character. Uh, If you read, uh, uh, for example, Milton, Paradise Lost, the way in which the figure of Satan uh, voices himself is very, very uh, strangely similar to the tone of voice and speech you find with Mara. Could it be, I wonder, and again I speculate here, that um, these two images perhaps have a common origin? One possibility might be that they both have come under the influence of a tradition that existed prior both to Buddhism and to at least the Judaism of say for example the, of the early texts and that, that, and that is in Zoroastrianism the Zoroastrianism is a dualistic system that um, explains the world in terms of an eternal conflict between light and dark and it's that kind of um, uh, polarity that we find then played out in, um, uh, in the figure of Mara and in the fi- figure of uh, Satan. It's a, a way of talking about the specifically human struggle. I think both the early Jewish tradition of Christianity and Buddhism are, um, uh, are premised on a point in human history where the human, in a way, became more central to um, life than the gods. Uh, Buddhism is, a, is, is, is a, in a sense, what Buddhism does um, is it replaces the gods with the dilemma of living as a human being who no longer can depend on them, the gods, but has to make the choices and decisions and find his or her way in the historical reality of the time. So possibly Mara and Satan are, uh, are enabled or, or, or are the consequence of, um, in cultural evolution, the, uh, the preeminence of the human. Again, that's very speculative, but again, if you get the book, you'll, you, you'll see um, how brilliantly this is argued. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, the Christian Satan yes. um, when Satan is tempting Christ uh, at, at, at the final point Christ with 50 men mm-hmm. Satan I see you that's true um, no that, that, that is true but I, someone quoted to me um, another passage Again, he didn't have the reference, but the somewhere in the Gospels, or perhaps in the apocryphal Gospels, I'm not sure where, Jesus says, if, if you get rid of ten demons, a hundred more will come. <laughs> Does anyone know where that is, that passage? I'd like to track that down. Uh, so there you have the sense, a counter sense there, that actually just getting rid of the demons is actually not in itself going to solve the problem. Yes. Well, you were talking about Mara and the devil, uh, some aspect of them being like a constricting, freezing, righteous force. And kind of, I'm wondering, how do you think about that as also being a necessary (coughs) force? Because it seems like the other opposite of that, the expansive Mm -hmm. life, that actually get kind of out of control. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. without that countervailing exactly. of the more uh, energy. No, that's absolutely right. And the, in fact, that's the point, perhaps one of the key points that I, I hammer home throughout the book is that we, you know, conceptually we can differentiate between Buddha and Mara, between constriction and freedom. But experientially, you cannot have one without the other. They're, they're, they're absolutely intertwined. They're meaningless in isolation. And it's here, I think, that we come to 
perhaps one, one, one of the most uh, uh, you know, crucial points is that the demonic, in a way, is that which, uh, which forces us, or seems to force us, into splitting um, reality into two irreconcilable parts. So the very notions of good and evil, for example, we are very prone to think of ourselves as good and project everything evil onto the other. And, of course, when we experience as a culture or individually a great threat to our existence, a danger, an enemy, it's very telling how we so readily resort to this kind of dualistic and often religiously legitimated language. So, in the current global situation, we find that both parties to this conflict, Bush, Bin Laden, they both use the same demonizing language. They both project the satanic onto the other, evil, you know, the axis of evil or whatever it's called. And I always suddenly use another one. Anyway, never mind. But the point is, you, you, you see how the, 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 this polarization becomes split into um, two um, irreconcilably different things. Whereas I think what we find uh, certainly in, 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 the, in the Buddhist reflections on this is that we have to see the, the interdependence of those two ideas. That we cannot really have one without the other. That um, we need to seek more to understand the other than to demonize the other. The demonization just exacerbates the sense of difference and the sense of conflict and also the wider that gap becomes the more we are prone to feel terrified and frightened and fearful of the other. And this of course is how terrorism works. Terrorism is effective precisely because it keeps us in a state of fear. You don't have to have many terrorist attacks. The fact that they might happen that there are people plotting them is what is most um, difficult and most uh, uh, threatening to us. It's, it's sustaining a climate of fear. And that climate of fear, again, is very much a climate in which we feel um, paralysed. We feel unable to act. We feel hemmed in. We feel um, paranoid. So, indeed, I think that point is... Um, is uh, very much about the heart of the whole matter here and one that I seek uh, throughout this text to uh, somehow articulate and to embody. So thank, thank you for that. I think, I think we'd better... S- yes, one more question, then we'll start. Um, the metaphor of the path seems to me as, as a lot of imagery of geographical yeah. kind uh-huh. of Whereas in the Buddhist context, to me it seems much more like the path really is a sequence of choices. Mm-hmm. And as we move through our life, we move from one choice yeah. to the other. Uh-huh. And um, the more realized you are, the more effective and intentional you mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. in making those choices. And choices mm-hmm. become better and better in quality as you evolve. Yes. And so, the hence the, where the where the hindrances, mm-hmm. things that distract you, yes. to cause you to make poor choices and sort of inhibit you mm-hmm. in the path of one choice, mm-hmm. one good choice. Yes, yes, yes. So, how does that fit with your thesis? <laughs> well, no, it fits perfectly well. In that, I I, I completely agree with you. Um, the, the, the path um, is, the practice of meditation, for example, is for me only, um, only useful, is only valid, if it enhances our capacity to make choices. It's not about, you know, sort of introspectively diving into our inner life and finding some kind of blissful contentment. I've got nothing against that. But um, it, in it, that, that is, I think, only one step that is perhaps rather important to, uh, to ground ourselves in. 
But the path is really the opening up into um, what is to come next. It's, it, it's about, and this is why the image of the path, I think, is such a good one, is that when you are following a path in geography, you are stepping, if you, in, with each step, into a, a new vista, a new set of possibilities. And if you take that metaphor, then likewise, um, if we think of choice, not as a subjective act, but we think of it as a response to the world as an arena of possibilities. It has an objective dimension as well. And the path, I think, captures that idea. It's not only you know, the choices we make, perhaps we can consider as the steps we take, but we only can make choices because with each step we take, the world is reconfigured into a new set of possibilities. And so the path is not just an inward activity, but it is also a moving into the world itself through our choices. So yes, thank you.